the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. My guest on this week's show is Pat McCann, Chief Executive of Delata, Ireland's biggest hotel group. Born and raised in Sligo, Pat McCann has more than 45 years' experience in the hotel industry. This included six years as CEO of the Jury's Doyle Group. In 2005, he was responsible for selling the Berkeley Court and Jury's Balls Bridge Hotels to property developer Sean Dunn for more than €400 million. Euro. He gives an insight into the surreal nature of the bidding process, which resulted in Dunn paying record prices for the land. And I remember sitting at the table, and I almost... You rarely don't get an out-of-body experience... But I, I felt myself sitting beside myself, looking at myself and saying, this is nuts. This is nuts. And that's the reality of it. And, of course, that kind of changed everything for us. McCann then left Jury's Doyle to set up the Lata in 2007. It had a near-death experience after the crash in the Irish economy the following year, but survived to become Ireland's biggest hotel chain, operating 41 hotels and more than 8,000 bedrooms. It uses the Maldron and Clayton brands and had revenues last year of about €300 million. Euro. I began by asking Pat McCann about the storm created by Donald Trump's controversial curbs on immigration to the US. Should Enda Kenny visit the White House on St. Patrick's Day? And should we close the US customs and border facilities in Dublin and Shannon airports? Pat, you're very welcome to the show. Good morning, Karen. Uh, I should ask you about Donald Trump. He's very much in the news, obviously, uh, particularly in relation to his immigration, his, his ban on immigration, which has been halted for now. But there have been a lot of calls in Ireland, first of all, for uh, the Taoiseach not to take up this invitation to go to the White House on St. Patrick's Day, which is an annual event, uh, and also for us to review these uh, US CBP facilities in Dublin and Shannon, which effectively allow people to clear customs and border control and arrive into the US as domestic pa- passengers uh, effectively. And there have been calls for these facilities to be closed as a reaction to what uh, Trump has done. What's your view? Uh, I suppose it's like everything um, with, 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 with uh, President Trump. We need to be very careful that we don't start responding to everything that he does and says. And I think that's the problem as well. Like, like every news bulletin, everything you see is about Donald Trump. And, that, and it's actually playing into mm-hmm. his hands in, in that sense. And, and my view is that we should be very careful about what paths we lead ourselves down. Uh, and I think the fact that Arthishuk, uh will attend St. Patrick's Day is a good thing. And I would encourage it. And I would encourage them to continue to actually keep in discussion because the worst thing you can have is that he gets isolated or we get isolated one or the other which will will help nobody so my view is look um, let's let's play this out it's 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 not pleasant uh, it's some of the things that he does and says but that's the way he's going to be and and I think you know the danger for everybody is if they try to respond to everything we will end in the same kind of chaotic space as he wants it to be and that's that's a danger. <clears throat> Getting back to the airport, I think I think we have a unique facility in Ireland, which has added significantly to our both FDI investment and also to our own citizens for ease of access and, and tourism and tourism. Like it's 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 a, it's a big game, and I travel frequently to the states. And it's a great facility to arrive into New York or Boston or Chicago, wherever you're going. Just pick up your bag and off. And you you're go. you're in domestic and the, the the advantages of that. And very few other countries have that. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't start doing things that's going to affect us. Uh, mm. We should be looking to make sure that the things we do keeps Ireland in the forefront and not necessarily 
start dragging us back into where we were uh, a long number of years ago. So <clears throat> I think this notion of just responding every time he says something is wrong. Let it play out and eventually it will. Yeah, OK. Well, let's talk about the last in 2016. I mentioned there revenues of uh, circa 300 million euros. That'll be analysts' expectations for 2016. Yeah. You haven't released your full year results yet, but that will be a big step up from the 225 million, I think, for full year 15. Talk us Correct. through those uh, numbers. Correct. And I suppose, uh, and again, you know, I need to be careful. I'm not giving mm. forecasts or anything like that, but these are what analysts have, have, have uh, laid out uh, that we will do in, in, uh, in 20. 16, and we're, we said in our pre-closed statement that we're not uncomfortable with analyst views. So it's been a fantastic year for Delata. I mean, I, I suppose what, what people don't realise is like, you know, while we have all of these rooms, we also have 4,500 employees. So we're one of the largest employers in the country. Uh, and I suppose it's like everything, you know, we probably don't get a lot of credit for all of that. And these, a lot of these are good, permanent, pensionable jobs. They're not on what people think are the lower end of the scale, even though we do have people on the minimum wage, but they rise through the ranks very quickly. And one of our key components of Delata is growing people internally, where we will grow everybody internally, yeah. right up to general manager level. Uh, and that's going to be a critical part, and it creates great opportunity for people to grow with us. Uh, 2016 was, was, was great for us because, obviously, we, we acquired Choice Hotels, we acquired the leasehold interest in, in, in what's now the Clayton Burlington Road. So that's the old Burlington Hotel. That is the old was. Burlington Hotel. And, and you know, mm. with the best will in the world, no matter how hard we try, it'll always be known at the mm. Burlington or the Burla. But, you know, we, we have it branded Clayton as part of our group. It's fitted already, even though it's only there since the 22nd of November, mm. it's already fitted very well and, into the scheme of things. And that's one of the biggest hotels in the country, isn't it, bedroom-wise? It is the second biggest Um it, it, when we do our extension in uh, our Clayton uh, Dublin airport, it'll be the third biggest because that'll move to 610 rooms from its current four. So how many rooms in the borough now? 504. Okay. So it's, it is, and the, the biggest, obviously, is City West. Mm. So for us, it's a significant property, but it's only one of the 40. And I always say to the team, we're the 41, you know, let's be focused on all of the hotels, not just the ones that kind of are large and have a high... I suppose, prominent. So we are very focused on our total business. Tell us where your business comes from. I mean, how much of it is, let's say, generated from business or leisure? How much from the UK, continental Europe, US? Yeah, I suppose, <clears throat> the, the, you know, we get asked this question a lot by analysts in terms of, you know, where is your business leisure or is it corporate? And uh, I, I suppose we break it down. So each hotel has its own different strategy. So some hotels in Dublin would be entirely uh, uh, transient leisure. That's their business. Right, which ones are? Which ones well, are we the, talking uh, about? The smaller ones, like, like our Maldon, Pier Street, Parnell Square, Smithfield, they are essentially driven by transient leisure business. But then the larger properties have a mixture of both corporate and leisure. And some of them, like our Clayton Cardiff Lane, would have high density of corporate because obviously it's right beside Google and Facebook and all of that, and it drives a lot of its business. Conference centre and so on. <clears> yeah. Absolutely. And, they, and that's the kind of business that's that And you, have. you'd have a clutch of hotels in Ballsbridge as well. We do, and they're a similar mix. So, so mm. they'd have a very strong, driven by the banking embassy sector, like the, the Clayton Burlington Road we mentioned. We have Amazon headquarters setting up right beside us, so that'll be a big client, hopefully. Um, and we also do a lot of airline business. So for us, it's, it's a very broad mix. But each hotel has its own strategy. So if you take Clayton Leopardstown, 
where, you know, you might say, well, it's, it's, it's a bit out of the city. But it has a high density of corporate because there's a high level of corporate activity in that area, not mentioning Microsoft and Vodafone and Ulster Bank and Sage and Hostel World and all of those companies that are right beside us, which are avid users of hotels, and it suits us perfectly. So each hotel has a significant portion of its business that will be corporate. The ideal mix, if you, if you can have an ideal mix for a kind of a six-day business, is essentially if you have about 55% of your property is corporate and 45 is 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 leisure. And that means that you're full midweek, which are corporates, and, and you're full at weekends with leisure. So what's the average occupancy across the groups? In the low 80s across low the 80s. group. It'll be, it'll be brought down a little bit by... Clayton Burlington Road in this current year because that operates because with 500 odd rooms operates a slightly lower occupancy. That doesn't mean to say that it's not that we won't move that significantly forward. Like some of our hotels like our Clayton Parnell Square and Smithfield would have operated in the high 90s in 2016. Okay, but very specific operating models for those Correct, uh, absolutely correct. Yeah, yes. okay. um, now what about average room rates? What are we talking about? Uh, again, I know it's a bit of a mix but let's say the, the Burlington. What kind of average room rate would you have for the Burlington? Yeah, you're, you're, you're talking about 110 to 115 euro on right. an annual basis. Now, now Pat, I say respect, respectfully, uh, if you like, that uh, there are probably people listening to this podcast thinking, uh, I can't remember the last time I got a, a room in for 110 euro in, in the Burlington mm. or maybe in some of your uh, Balls Bridge yep. uh, properties. I mean, hotel prices in Dublin are very frothy right now. You, you see, I, I think the problem which people don't understand is that when you break, if you can imagine a layered cake, and that's the way our, our room rates work. So sitting at the bottom of the layer is your tour business, which is heavily discounted. The next part is your corporate, which is heavily discounted. And then sitting right at the top is your transient leisure, where most people end up paying. So they're paying those higher rates that you say. But when we break it down into the mix of business, that's the way mm. it works out. So <clears throat> if you take it that I think our average room rates in 2015 was less than €100. Euro. Like, and that's the problem with it, that, that there's a small portion of our business which sits at the top, okay. that gets the higher rate. So it's the ordinary Joe who gets soaked? Well, I, I never like to put it like that, but that's the way the system works. And I suppose one of the other big problems mm. we've had over the last number of years is that both our tour business and our corporate business have been very slow to move rate. So it's been much more difficult to move the rate there. And what you're doing is you're almost, and I won't say penalising, you're transient. So that's changing. That's changed since 2016 and will change again in 2017, where you won't see this massive rise in your transient rate because our corporate rates and our tour business rates are rising to make sure that we have that level of growth in okay. the properties. And what would somebody expect to pay, let's say, in Ballsbridge or the Burlington uh, on the, the weekend of a Six Nations game? We've got France and England at home, two plum fixtures at home yes. uh, this year. What might people uh, expect to pay? Well, if you could get a room, which is highly unlikely at this point in time, it, it'd be around €300. Euro. Wow. Is that good value? I mean, That is amazing value. Like, like if, 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 if I look at Cardiff for the Welsh match, like we're, we're, and you have a property in Cardiff. We of have a property in Cardiff, and we're one of the lowest rated in the sense of the city. But we're getting nearly four hundred pounds sterling for that weekend, um, and where you know a lot of the hotels are up in five and six hundred pounds sterling, and we don't go there. Like, like I know people yeah. say we're expensive in Dublin, but we're not from an international point of view. Like, <clears throat> we rarely get a comment from our international visitors on room rate. Rarely, it comes from the context of the Irish user. The domestic have, customer, yeah. Who has been used of extraordinarily low, unsustainable rates. So we've had to move those rates. I mean, you know, it is no 
a coincidence the fact that we have had very little hotel development in Dublin over the last kind of 10 years, simply down to the fact that economically, up to now, it doesn't make sense. Mm. Well, financing was probably a, an issue, well, Re- well, regardless of whether the room rate well, was see, there or not. You see, the, the point about it is, if, if financing was the issue, international hotel groups would have looked at it because they won't have the same challenge as domestic. Mm. And therefore, why are those guys not coming? Simply, they can get a better bang for their bucks elsewhere. That's as simple as that. It's, it's not driven by any other thing that, you know, while we have some challenges around planning and height, it's not the biggest issue. You're absolutely right from a funding perspective from an Irish context. It's extraordinarily difficult to get funding. And it's, it's, it's even more difficult to get development funding. Like if you're buying a hotel asset, you have a trading asset. Yeah. If you're building a hotel, it's two to three years <coughs> before you start making yeah, Mind you, we saw some very frothy prices for the Gresham Hotel. Uh, recently, the Burlington changed hands. Correct. Uh, we, we've seen other properties uh, change hands over the past Correct. couple of years. Properties that you've said you wouldn't bid on because the prices were mad. Correct. And absolutely. And, and, and I still stand to that, that we would not be bidding on those at those because we don't see a return on that. And as a result of that, we, we think that the best option for us is to build in Dublin, which we're building, as we speak, 600 rooms in Dublin. Uh, that's both two new hotels and extensions. That's we're Kevin be- Street and Charlemont. Correct. The hotels. Uh, yeah, we'll have a Clayton, Dublin Airport. We'll have a Clayton and Charlemont, an and then we'll have a, a, a Maldron in Kevin Street. Both construction projects yeah. have started. We're going to put on 140 rooms at our Clayton Dublin Airport, 35 in our uh, Ballsbridge, Clayton Ballsbridge, and hopefully up to 50-odd in our... Maldon Parnell Square. So all of that added together will will put in 600 new rooms into the city, which is badly needed, by the way. Yeah, I think we need, what, five, five and a half thousand, according to commentators? I'm not sure where they're getting those numbers, quite frankly, but certainly we need something north of 3,000. And and I think that, in reality, you'll see some of that happening uh, as we get into 2018. Very little, I, I will say. You'll see more of it happening in 2019 and probably more of it Mm. again in 2020. But what about this issue of competitiveness? Because there is a view, maybe the perception is wrong, but there is a view that Dublin's expensive. Uh, Dublin in particular, but hotel prices Mm. in Ireland are are becoming expensive again. And we had the Web Summit organisers who went off to Lisbon um, citing uh, a lack of hotel rooms on on the one hand and also the fact that prices were very frothy on the other uh, as one of the reasons why they decided to up sticks. Well, I know Paddy, uh, and he will do this things. Paddy Cosgrave. Paddy Cosgrave. Yeah. Yeah, my apologies, yeah. yeah. I should he, say, listeners, that uh, yeah. Pat is smiling uh, here we, as, we, I, as I ask him this question. We, we, we actually did, had a quick look at what was happening in Lisbon, and it's exactly the same thing. Like, hoteliers are driven by demand. So the way hotel business works now, it's dynamic pricing. So it depends on demand. If demand is strong, prices go up. If demand is weak, prices come down. That's the way it works. And it's, it's no different the, the world over. And... This notion that Dublin is expensive, and I'll come back to this, from a domestic point of view, they perceive it to be. From an international point of view, we're not expensive at all. And that's, like, I travel a lot, and I travel to European cities, and I do a lot of business in European cities, and I stay in hotels that would be similar to ours. And I would love, dearly love, to get the room rates some of those guys are getting. We simply don't get the same room rate, particularly on our corporate side, as those guys do. Like, even if I look at comparative cities like Amsterdam and Copenhagen and Barcelona, like, we're about between 10 and 20% behind them in terms of room rate. We're ahead in occupancy. I'll accept that. 
but we're well behind in terms of average room rate. And I wouldn't compare ourselves to London or Paris or places like that because they're they're on a different scale and will always operate on a different scale. Yeah. And the government gave you a break in your VAT rate, lowered it uh, to nine percent yes. from uh, was it thirteen or thirteen and a half? Thirteen and a half percent. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that was uh, after the Fine Gael uh, led government came in Correct. in two thousand and eleven, and it's definitely worked. It has definitely it, helped it, the industry it has get back been on its feet. Wonderful, not just industry. I think I think there's this notion. There's, there's a couple of. Uh, is it still justified? That's the, do we still need it? Of course, it's justified because Why? you see, because rates Dub- are going back up. Yeah, but but you see, you, we're, we're looking at we're looking at a very narrow base in Dublin. Look outside Dublin and what's happening. Like we're well behind what we were in two thousand and seven, and this notion that it costs the exchequer, um, and you'll have people ta- saying it's three hundred and fifty million. That's rubbish. That's absolute rubbish. In my view. The exchequer didn't lose at all because what actually happened was, as a result of the reduction, the volumes increased so much that, in fact, the VAT take was probably similar, even if not ahead. And as part of that process, we created 40,000 new jobs. Now, you tell me any other sector that sure. has done that. Sure, but I mean, the, the car industry benefited from a scrappage scheme, but that was a temporary scheme um, that came in, it came and it went. Uh, so but that, why, didn't, that didn't create the same level of jobs. No, but it helped get the industry back on its it feet. It did, yeah, but it didn't. I, I'll come back to this thing. It yeah. create, and it's created And I jobs. accept everything you say, but has it not done its done its job now? Well, so, so, worked its so, so the theory of it is, you know, that we've got to a point now and we'll dismantle it now. That That doesn't make sense to me at all because there's still a long way to go. And we have, you know, a tourism has been the shining light in the Ireland recovery. And the beauty of tourism is is that it brings jobs to where no other people will bring jobs to. So if you look right across, the other great initiative was the Wild Atlantic Way and the Ancient East. All of that added to the thing. And it brings jobs to locations where there will be no FDI jobs, for want of a better word. Mm. And therefore, I'm saying, why would you dismantle something that has been so effective? And the fact that it didn't cost, this is the, the notion that it did because it then, of course... Well, now, hold on. It cost uh, <coughs> pensioners in the private sector because uh, their funds were dipped well, into I don't, to pay I, for it. I don't necessarily agree that that's the case at all. Well, I, I can show you my statements if you want my pension statements. I, 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 I have no argument with the fact that, that in fact, it, it affected pensions. But the fact is that it didn't cost the exchequer from a VAT perspective anything. And everybody's staying remarkably silent on that. Mm. And, and my view is that we need to be very clear about what we're trying to do here. We're trying to grow an industry and create jobs. And if you then look at what those jobs that were created, what it did to the exchequer as well, it took people off unemployment and suddenly they're adding to the coffers as well in terms of area. Yeah. So I should say, of course, that newspapers benefited from the uh, VAT reduction. I, I, w- I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. Mind you, it hasn't had the similar, it hasn't had the same impact on us. What about Airbnb? What impact is that having on the <coughs> hotel trade? I have I've a very simple... Air, Airbnb is, is something that um, is, is here to stay. What you will have and what you will need is some form of regulation because essentially you have a situation where Airbnb operates outside anything and you have, um, like, like if, if you look at Dublin, while it's relatively small, like it's a tiny percentage of, of anything. So And, and you know, the, this comes back to another point I was making earlier about room rates. In cities where room rates are relatively high, Airbnb gets traction. So places like London and Paris, New York, Boston, gets high traction. In, area, in cities where there is low room rates, it doesn't get the same traction at all. But, but, you know, I've had to worry about Dublin in the sense that with the new legislation that's coming in on 
letting apartments and all of that, that you will have a switch to Airbnb because it's less troublesome. It doesn't create the same problems. And you've already had notional and anecdotal evidence that that's actually beginning to happen. So, in fact, you know, government will need to watch this one very carefully because I think it'll actually take out apartments that would normally be let for residents. Mm, for housing uh, purposes. Yeah. For housing purposes into Airbnb. And that's that's something we can't allow happen from from every perspective of it. Yeah, OK. Um, and it's interesting what's going into the debate they're having in Barcelona at the moment. They're concerned, it seems, in Barcelona, the authorities, that the city is becoming overrun with tourists and Correct. there are too many hotels and too many uh, Airbnb and sort of informal right. hostels and so on being being built and they're trying to put some curbs Curtailage, in place. Yeah. 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 I mean, what, might we see the same happen in Dublin? Because if you walk around the streets of Dublin, I mean, you're constantly bumping into tourists. Do you think we might at someday reach that a similar inflection point? We're, we're a long, long, long way. We are not. We're not Los Ramblas in, in Barcelona and we never will be. We have a lot of space. We have a lot of, like, like relatively speaking, our Tourist number. I mean, they have something like 17 million visiting the city every year. Like we have nine million visiting the country. So there's a long way to go for us to be mm. in okay. that space. And if there was one thing the government could do, other than the VAT rate uh, for the industry to help move it along, what would it be? I, I think what we need to do, uh, we need to be careful about the money we're spending on international marketing. I think because of the success, there's been a pullback in that space, and that's something that we need to be careful of. That because you know. You, you normally don't see the effects that in the year after or the year after. It's the long term. And one of the things I'd worry about is the long term. But we have a great business, I suppose, that we it needs protection. And, you know, the only thing I'd ask the government to do, it's, and it's the only thing, is to leave the VAT in position because that that fundamentally has changed our industry. And hopefully... And, you know, the other interesting thing about that is that, you know, there's still a lot of countries in Europe that have a VAT rate far less... I think there's three that sits above us in Denmark and the UK or two and, and Slovakia, I think is the other one. And the rest are below us. So essentially, you know, we're not out of kilter with Europe in terms of VAT rate on tourism product at all. Hmm. But if you're saying, I mean, you said earlier that the prices we're charging for rooms here to, in, to an international audience, it's, it's good value. It's, uh, it's pretty it's reasonable. Good, so great. putting the rate back up to 13.5%, won't, won't affect our competitiveness from that, uh, well, that point you of see, view. Don't it? forget that you, you know that's that's on your transient rate. You know when you when you look below that on your tour operator business mm. and on some of your corporate stuff, you okay. still need to be that. What percentage is overseas of your business and what percentage is domestic? Again, if I look at at Dublin, a high percentage of it is overseas. If I look outside Dublin, a high percentage of it is domestic. So right. it's, it breaks down between the two. So if I if I look at uh, outside. Uh, Dublin is about 70% would be domestic and the balance would be international. Dublin would probably be the other way around. OK, we'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Pat McCann about why he chose to make his career in the hotel industry, those mega property deals with Sean Dunn and where he sees the latter in five years' time. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Welcome back to the show. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined in studio by Pat McCann, Chief Executive of Delata, Ireland's biggest hotel chain. Let me just remind you, if you want to support this podcast, you might like to remind your colleagues and friends that Inside Business is available to download for free from iTunes. You'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to have your say on any of the issues covered in Inside Business, you can do so by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. Uh, Pat McCann, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you've spent 45 years or so in the industry. How did you get involved in hotels? What was the draw? Unfortunately, it's now 47. 47. So, so, so <laughs> things, things move on rather rapidly. Um, I suppose if you, if you take it where I was brought up, I was reared in South Sligo, which is essentially small farming country, and hotel business would not be high on the agenda. But like, Is your family in farming? Uh, small farming, yes. And, and uh, like everything, I had supplemented by my father had a full-time job as well. So it was a combination of everything. I mean, essentially, you know, the, one of the things I suppose I look at now is how resourceful people were in those days and how self-sufficient they were. Whereas nowadays, we're not, we have lost all of that, which is a terrible pity, really, that, you know, because you could survive on almost nothing in those days. So what did you have on the farm when you were growing up? Well, we, we, had, we had cows, obviously, and we did milk and we made our own butter. Uh, we obviously grew all our own vegetables. We never bought vegetables. Like during the summer months in, in the 60s, we would probably buy things like tea, sugar, salt, not a lot else. Everything else would be from the, the little farm holding. And that meant that we were so self-sufficient. Like our fuel, I remember because we used to rent a bog, it used to cost us £2 a year. That was it. And, and that was our fuel bill for the year. And how big is the family? I, I, I had... Uh, I had two brothers, unfortunately. My brother Joe died two years ago, and I have uh, one brother and one sister now. Right, and okay. You said your dad had a, another job. He, what, he, what else did he, he do? He, he worked in a timber yard, Regan's Timber Yard in Ballymote, uh, for his sins. And uh, he spent. And he also he, he started out, I suppose, his working life on Temple House Estate, which is Lord Percival. Um, and we lived, we were actually, I was born in what was known as the Grand Gate, oh, the nice. Gate Lodge. And that was our home for eight years. And my father's health, he had to move because there was a lot of trees and he suffered asthma. So we had to move from that location kind of further south into, into Ballymote. And, uh, right, OK. So uh, what was the first job? My first job? Yeah. First job was Hall Porter in Ross's Point in the Yates Country Hotel, as it was known then. What year was that? That would have been about 1966 uh, during school holidays. Because essentially... You know, if if you wanted to have money, like up to that, I used to work with local farmers. So I'd be doing saving hay and cutting turf and bringing cattle Making to a few the, bob here the and fair. There. And that's mm. that's exactly what you did. You, you had to you had to make money. There was no such thing as getting pocket money from your parents because simply they didn't have it. Uh, and then I suppose to to make sure then that I had a more reliable income stream, I got my first job in about 1966 in Ross Point, and I went back each year. Uh, and I suppose that that's where the bug caught me. Like, and, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were having a run into this about, you know, industry at the time. It wasn't like an industry at all. It was much more... Ad hoc. ...domestic and, and all of that. But, you know, there was a wonderful kind of collegiate atmosphere. And while work was hard and hours were long, I, I, we, we really didn't notice. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't foremost in our minds, you know, that we had to do all these things. It was an accepted thing. And we got on with things. And... As a result, there was none of this kind of worrying about, you know, is there somebody taking advantage of us, which they may or may not have been 
in order to survive, that's the way they had to run businesses. Yeah. In those days. But I suppose there is a, a view of the hotel industry that it's it's kind of twenty four seven, particularly if you're in a position of responsibility. Mm. Uh, you're you're always on, and it's not perhaps not conducive, particularly conducive to family life. Would you concur? No, I think. You know, if you were asking me that question 30 years ago, yeah, like it was much more difficult. Now it's more, much more, more structured, structured organised. People work their hours, they have their time off, they have their holidays, they have all of the things. And, you know, while some of the hours are unsocial, and I fully accept that, but there's a whole heap of things out there that's unsocial mm. hours. That's probably better paid and there's more career structure. Oh, there there. Is, and and there, there is great opportunity. And for people who get into the business, um, they find it very, very difficult to do anything else because of the nature of the business and because of the, I suppose, the way we all work together and I suppose the nature of the people who come into the business who are hospitable people, for want of a, be- a better word, and who uh, are good in, in communicating and, and, and talking to each other. And as a result of that, there's great atmosphere. There is nothing like being involved in a very large hotel where you have all of the activity that goes on. And it can be quite exciting. And then if you try and move from that into an office space, for a lot of people, it doesn't work at all. Yeah, so. yeah sure. So I mentioned that you joined uh, the Ryan yeah. Group in 1969. So 1960. just just sort of chart your career from so, there. So to so essentially, um, I, I was due to go. Um, I got a teacher scholarship, to go teacher training to teach woodwork and science. I, don't ask me why it was like that, but that was. The, and of course, when I came home to my parents and told them I wasn't going to take that, they're horrified. Was, I'm sure that, that are horrified because like. For them, the hotel business was a foreign country. Like, it was totally alien. And presumably, teaching was a pensionable job. Correct, and, and everything would have been wonderful. And, that's, that, and of course, you know, so in those days, you, you either got into the civil service, you know, you got a teacher's job, you became mm. a guard, or all of the things that, you know, that... that were, you, were you handy at carpentry? I was, I was pretty okay at those. Well, you see, in those days, you had to be able to do everything. Like, like when I was 16, I rewired our entire house for electric because... That's what had to be done because somebody had to do it and I had a bit of knowledge around mm. things like that. So I suppose I was relatively handy around things like that. But the hotel business was, was something that was in my system. And then <clears throat> when I did my leave insert, a guy called Hugh Duffy, who's still alive, thankfully, offered me a job as, as a trainee manager at Ryan Hotels. And I thought this was wonderful. And because I, I was immediately sent to Killarney. And you can imagine a guy coming out of South Sligo, uh, into Killarney and Killarney was a wonderful place because you had all of international traffic you had a lot of Americans it was well geared for tourism even in those days and you arrive in this town and it was fantastic and I loved every minute and then shortly after that Ryan's were opening a new hotel in London and I went over to open that with with the general manager who had moved from Killarney again fantastic Mm. experience you know and you can imagine again a guy from South Lake arriving in London and we had a great experience Um, and I suppose it built on that and I spent the next 20 years with Ryan's culminating in my final job was in the Royal Marine in Dunleary where we had bought that and we redeveloped that and we had a fantastic business there. We were doing 250 weddings a year. It was humming the place and then Peter Malone approached me from Juries. He'd just been taken over as MD and he needed to replace himself and the rest is history. And I suppose out of that, the reason, you know, I left Ryan's, which was a buzzing company at the time, much larger actually than Jury's at the time. Uh, but I liked the idea of what he, what Peter wanted to do with the business. And this notion that we build a second brand, which was Jury's Ends, was really attractive to me because I'd done a lot of looking at the US and what was happening in the mid-scale sector and understood that. Uh, and therefore... Jury's Ends being a three-star 
Correct. budget plus, I think, is the Correct. way you like to Correct. describe it. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I mean, and it's that, been a great success. That was, was a huge success. I mean, if you think of that business, like it started, its first property opened in Galway in 1993. And it sold in 2006 for 1.165 billion. Yeah, like that was Quinlan and a consortium. Uh, correct. Put together. And yeah. you might argue that it was far too much, but <coughs> I would, yes. Yeah, and so would I too, by the way. So, so the reality is mm. that it built this fantastic business. You also sold those hotels in uh, Ballsbridge, Berkeley Court, and the uh, Jury's Ballsbridge to Sean Dunn. Correct. And it was over, I think it was just over 400 million euros. Between the two, between the two, the, the whole site, the, the, the old Berkeley Court site and the Jury's Ballsbridge site, that was 400 million. And that was at the height of the property boom, some of the that most was, expensive property. Like, you see, you see, this notion that, that um, like, we, we recognised as a company in 2005. This is Jury's Doyle? Yes, before the, the kind of the, the crunch came at all. That property prices had moved to a point where we it was unsustainable, and this notion that the Barclay Court our juries were unprofitable simply wasn't true. They could never give the return that we could get by selling those assets and recycling that cash in the company. And we were a PLC, so it was incumbent on us to do things like that. So that's why we started out the process. So we already had sold the Tower Towers, the Skyland, the Green Isle. We'd already moved on, and we were selling hotels like in 2004, 2005, because of the property values and the alternative use value of those sites. And that was inevitable that that, that would continue. But of course, once you start doing that, that immediately opened up the door to other investors saying, look, these guys are sitting on a lot of valuable property. So we got a lot <coughs> of approaches to take the company out. But do you feel any sense of responsibility for what subsequently happened? Because obviously the, the prices that were paid were crazy. They were yeah. mad. Uh, and it came back to bite John Dunn in the ass. Uh, and indeed, Ireland and the banks, uh, the Irish yeah. taxpayer in the ass as well, ultimately. Yeah. Um, do you feel any sense of responsibility that you played a part in this property bubble which not a exploded pick. in our faces? Not a pick. You see, you see, don't forget there was a lot of other players in, in, in that space as well. So you had the banks and you had the property developers who, who are crying out. If it wasn't, like essentially, if I hadn't done that, shareholders would have removed me, and rightly so, because I wouldn't have been doing the right thing for my shareholders. And my first responsibility is to the company and my shareholders. Let's be absolutely clear about it. So there was no sense of regret that we were part of this because that's what somebody wanted to pay. And if it happened again, hmm. we'd have to do exactly the same what thing. What went through your head, though, when you when you saw the bids that John done, you know, the money that he ultimately paid? Did you think it was mad money yourself? I, 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 I still remember the day, we, because we sold it, if you remember, in two tranches. We sold the balls, Jury's Balls Bridge first, and then we sold the, the, the Barclay Court following on from that. But I remember, I can still remember the day, sitting in Ulster Bank in Dame Street, where we opened the bids. And, and I can tell the story now, but, you know, we had a, a lot of bids, and you had to have 10 million of, of a, a banker's draft in order to get into the bidding process. So what we decided to do was, rather than have, because uh, you got a receipt, so rather than having receipt number one, we started it at number seven. So the guy who came in first got receipt number seven, so he thought there was seven people behind him. As it transpired, we had about ten bids. And I remember the first bid to be opened was for, the, for that property was, was 126 million. That was it, I said, because my target was 150. That was where I'd been very comfortable. As it turned out, the next bid was actually John Dunn's at two hundred and seventy-five million, and we had three bids following on from that: one at two seventy-three, one at two seventy-one, and one at two sixty-eight. And I remember sitting at the table, and I almost 
you rarely don't get an out-of-body experience. But I, I felt myself sitting beside myself, looking at myself and saying, this is nuts. This is nuts. And that's the reality of it. And, of course, <coughs> that kind of changed everything for us. Yeah. Um, and quite extraordinary. I mean, we're 10 years on and the Berkeley Court is only being built on now. Correct. Uh, the Balls Bridge site, the Jury's Balls Bridge site is we'll, still operating we'll at as some a hotel. We'll at some future point. Right. How long more has it got? Technically, it's up until 2018. Uh, that may that may change. So, so it may be longer. It may be longer, but that's a discussion. Right. And there will be a hotel on the site, won't there? There will be a 152 bedroom property on the site. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, not long after that, now you left uh, Jury Law in well, 2006. Well, you see, what happened, I suppose, again, the sequence of events was the company went private shortly after that because essentially others recognised the value that was hidden in the company um, and therefore it, they, there was a lot of bids came in for the company and then it sold at 18, 90 a share, which was phenomenal return for investors. Uh, and I stayed on with the, with the, the it, and, and the Doyle and Beatty families bid on it at that point and were successful. Yeah. And I stayed on with them for a year. And you left then in 2006. 2006. Yeah. And the following year you set up Correct. Um And I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, you had a, a near-death experience and that's, um, mm. uh, you know, my sort of assumption because obviously the property crash came. I'm sure you had great plans in 2007 for the and then the crash comes and suddenly there's no money in the market. Yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially... Nowhere to go. Like, 2000, we bought the business in August of 2000, and we're 10 years old this year, actually, as it transpires. We, we bought the business in 2007, and we had this notion that we'd build a platform business in Ireland and then expand and do exactly what we had done with the Jury's Inn brand into the UK. As it transpired, of course, uh, uh, the world fell apart in, in mm. 2008. Now, mind you... For the first uh, three quarters of 2008, we didn't see any effects at all. We had a very strong... So you period. didn't see the crash coming? Well, we, we, were talking, we were talking about a credit crunch and things like that, but we saw no effects on our business up until September of, of 2008. Okay. And the uh, latter was initially set up with money from TVC Holdings it was, it was and Davey Private Clients. Yeah, so you put uh, your own money in as well. We did, yeah. And, and, and a guy called Rory Quirk and Gavin Burke from, from TVC Holdings, they had approached me about the, the project back in the February, the previous mm. February. And uh, we then raised money through Davy Private Clients, through Dave Goddard in Davy Private Clients, which essentially we were very lucky in that the project cost us 45 million. Uh, but we raised something like 31 million in equity. and the, the So our debt was relatively low. So it meant that we didn't have this huge burden mm. of debt. And that's one of the things that stood to us. So how close did the company come to maybe not collapsing, but not being able to progress? We were very close. Like, to give you an example, in 2009, the company had an EBITDA of 200,000. Now, in all of the process, we never missed a, an interest payment or a capital repayment. We were able to maintain all of that because our cash flow was good. But in two, 2009 was the fundamentally the worst year ever. And, you know, what, 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 you know, we had luck on our side. You know, people think we had great strategic vision in that we started looking at managing hotels that banks were appointing receivers over. Like, that happened by accident because a guy called Pat Handley, who was with ACC Bank, um, came to us and said he was going to, they were going to appoint a receiver over a couple of hotels and would we be interested in managing this? And that sparked a light in our heads to say, well, if ACC Bank are going to be doing this, there's going to be a lot of other banks. So by the middle of 2010, we were actually managing 37 hotels on behalf of banks and receivers. And that saved us. That's, that was the fundamental thing that because we had uh, management fee income coming in 
And, you know, this notion that the banks were providing us with these fees, we had to earn those fees out of the properties we were managing. We got no money either for capital expenditure or fees from the bank. Not we, a red cent. Not a red cent. We earned the money to reinvest and to pay our fees. Mm, that's okay. that's the way it worked. And then in 2014, you took the latter to market. And I think it's fair to say you surprised everybody by being able to raise 265 million euro. I mean, it was a big, big, big sum of money. Including ourselves. By and we were only, Ireland was only just, yeah, Ireland like, was only like, just out of the bailout. Like the, 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 the reality is that we had started this process. Like, you know, while we hadn't strategic vision on the management side, and certainly we had very clear strategic vision on the flotation and what we were going to do. And we spent, I suppose, a year or so trying to look at doing this with private equity as opposed to going to the public markets. Um, and that really didn't work at all. It was just too slow and too cumbersome. So we made the decision in 2013 that we'd look at floating the business. And we did a thing called pilot fishing, which, you know, we went out to the market and said, if we were going to do this, would you be interested in investing? And we spent a number of days in, in New York and Boston, London, Paris, Frankfurt. They were kind of the key locations. And we got a great response because we had this notion that we'd raise maybe about 100 million and we'd put another 75 million of debt on it and that would be enough to do what we wanted to do. When we came back after pilot fishing, we got such a strong response, we'd raised our target to 150 million of equity and then obviously maybe 100 million of debt. So we'd have a quarter of a billion to spend. Um, and as it transpired, of course, when... We went back out in March because you have to give them a period. We did this in January, the pilot fishing. When you come back in March, we went out <coughs> to the market. And then when the bids came in, um, we were offered just under 800 million at that point in time. And we took 265 million. Right. And that gave you the platform to then grow the business aggressively as you, as you have done. Just in an Irish context, just tell us what share of the market you have now. We have 10% of the entire bed stock in Ireland. We have about 22% in Dublin, 22% in Cork, about 15% in Limerick, same in Galway. And how many hotels, how many bedrooms in, in Ireland? In, in total now, yeah. about 57,000. No, sorry, uh, for Delata. Oh, for Delata. Uh, we have 1,500 in the UK and the balance then is in Ireland, so three and something thousand. Right, okay. Um, and the UK is obviously, uh, are you at saturation point in Ireland? Effectively, or will you be when you when we, you add these new we, hotels? We are, we are. Um, I suppose when you look at our exposure to certain markets, we're probably like Dublin. At, you know, in the early twenties, would we want more? Probably not an awful lot more. Um, it, it'll be strategic. Um, Cork would be the same. We're now the largest, op obviously, operator in Cork. I'd, I'd go again in Galway if I got something suit suitable. Limerick were fine. So you're right because we're we're we're, we're we want to be in the large urban areas. Right, okay, so the UK is the next obvious market. Correct. You've already got Cardiff. Um, you've Belfast in construction. Yeah, we have 10 hotels in <coughs> in the UK currently in operation, and we're building uh, in Belfast, and we're building in Newcastle, in England, where I am tomorrow, actually. And, uh, some of those were acquired from the old, uh, from the Moran Hotel Group, weren't they? Some of them were in well, London. Well, the ones, so on. the ones in, in Manchester, Leeds, and London, yeah. yes. Were acquired, uh, okay. Uh, um, and you've got one in, uh, you've got a Maldron in Newcastle? Under construction? Under construction, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I mean, what's the plan for the UK uh, in the long term? The plan is, is that uh, we be, obviously the, the team, because a lot of the team are my ex-jury's colleagues, quite frankly. So I think out of the, the top 15, 10 of us have worked together for a long number of years across the, the jury's portfolio. So we know the UK very well. We know Provincial UK extremely well. Um, so our, our plan at this point in time is to look at strategically building out the brands, both Maldon and Clayton, in the UK 
uh, and that may become with new bills or acquisitions, depending on which suits us at the time. Right. So what about Brexit? Uh, what role is that going to uh, play in your plans over the next uh, couple of years? I, I think, uh, again, um, you know, we, 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 we've taken a very serious look at this and, and looked at what effects it might or mightn't have. And if you look at London, London will probably be more affected by Brexit than Provincial UK because when I look at Provincial UK, most of the business is a bit like Ireland. It's domestic. It's the same in most countries. So it's, it doesn't have the same rises and falls as, as, as London will have. Um, so London may benefit or it may be more challenged. Um, but in our view, uh, Provincial UK is still very strong, still performing exceptionally well, has showed no signs of slowing down. And what we're looking at in the large urban areas, selected large urban areas, is opportunity. That's the way we look at it. And I suppose when you look at those cities, uh, a large number of them have a lot of older, underinvested assets. And as long as that exists, there's an opportunity for us with, with brand new uh, mm. properties. So, uh, I mean, let's look out five years. How mm. big a chain do you think, Mal, uh, do you think the latter will be? Well, obviously, we have very clear targets, and we're actually, at this point in time, working on our five-year strategy as to where we'll take the business. But I suppose, and, and I suppose I'm loath to kind of put a number on it and say, well, look, oh, go on. we're going to have double the number of properties and things like that. I simply don't know. I suppose, you know, we are very focused on expanding because when I look at, at, at the latter and I look back to my jury's days, like I had always said I had a lot of unfinished business in, in juries. And I'm doing that in the latter now. So we will continue to move at a pace in terms of growth. And that will be either come through new build or mm. acquisitions. And by and large, our focus is going to be on the UK for mm. the next four to five years. And it depends. So will it be 50 plus properties? <coughs> oh, we certainly will. Or I'd, I'd in, in terms of revenues, what kind of? I'd, I'd be disappointed in that. Well, again, you know, it depends on where they are. So, again, I need to be careful about giving revenues because I'm giving forecasts and I'll get into all sorts of trouble if I give forecasts. And what about for Pat McCann? Because I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're 65. I am 65. All right. Uh, eligible for the bus pass uh, next, next year. year. Will you be applying? In September, actually. Right. Will you be applying? I will, of course. Yeah. Oh, Why excellent. not? All right. Um, so, do, I mean, do you, do you see yourself in five years' time still running this business or have you a succession plan in place? Well, we clearly have a very strong succession plan in place because I, I always felt that, you know, that even when I started the company, I wanted a succession. So I have two deputy CEOs, Stephen McNally, who has been with me for since 1990, and Dermot Crowley, who has been with me since 2000. So we know each other all very well. So they'll be the... The, the choices that the board will have in terms of succession, and um, they'll decide. And the way I put it to the board is that they decide when I go, not me. Because, you know, when you get to a certain age, you don't see yourself slowing. You think you're still a young fellow, which I still do. Uh, but you mightn't be as fit or as thoughtful as you were. So I've, I've, I've asked the board and I've, I've said to them, look, part of your job and responsibility is to tell me when to pack up and go. That's it. Um, so they'll do that and they'll decide when that happens. But how long How long more? I mean, just in um, terms of your desire, how much longer do you want to be chief executive? Well, a year, two years? You know, I retired in 2006 because uh, I made a few bob in, in juries on, on my share options and all good stuff. And I thought, why not? You know, I was play a bit 50, of golf. 56. Well, I don't play golf at all. I'm, I'm a boring git in many ways. So essentially... Um, I thought this would be great, and after three months, I had enough. That was it. I couldn't couldn't do it anymore. So, 
So this notion of like, and I think we have to change our mindset about retirement. You know that if you're if you're fit and you have the mental agility and you're contributing, you know this notion that you have to go at sixty five. I think it's fundamentally flawed anyway. Yeah. Okay. And um, now finally, I, I should just ask you. Let's take it as a given that all of the hotels in the the latter group are your favourite hotels and the best hotels yes. by a country mile. But um, if uh, if you weren't staying in the latter, what would be your favourite hotel in Ireland and your favourite hotel overseas? My favourite hotel in Ireland is Ballinahinch Castle. Uh, and I just love it. That's the Dennis O'Brien property? It is indeed, yes. And it's, 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 it's lovely. And, and Patrick down there looks after us extremely well. So, and and I, I like it because it's so different to everything we do. Like, it's, while it has a commercial attitude, it doesn't have the same attitude as, as, as we have to have. Uh, so I love that. Okay. And, and overseas? Uh, overseas, um, like, like I, 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 I suppose I stay... Because when I go and stay overseas, I stay in similar properties to ourselves. I like, I have to say, I like what Accor are doing with Sofitel. I think <clears throat> they've done a very good job in what was a very difficult brand for them. And I do like some of them. So we stayed in their one in Chicago recently and I thought it was, it was really excellent. And it's, again, similar to what we do. Uh, but they did it extraordinarily well. And I just think, you know, there's, there's lessons for us to be learned there. Okay, listeners, you've heard it there now. Balna Hinch and Sophie Tell, Pat McCann's recommendations for hotels outside the, the Ladder Group. Uh, we leave it there uh, for this episode of Inside Business. My thanks to Pat McCann of the Ladder Hotels for joining me in the studio. Declan Conlon produced the podcast. Uh, don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to make any comments or suggestions about Inside Business, contact us by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 